Welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan, an in-depth look at our industry from our very own Chief Medical Officer, who will talk with other medical and industry professionals on the changing and evolving landscape of the healthcare system from the inside. And now, live from Zero Studios, our very own infectious disease expert with a contagious personality, Dr. Stan Schwartz. Welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare. My name is Dr. Stan Schwartz, and I'm excited to welcome you all and get started with a great conversation with a very interesting guest today, Dr. Scott Conard. Dr. Conard is the CEO of Converging Health, LLC, and works with a number of businesses. And I think you'll find today what he has to say to be very interesting. So with that, good morning, Scott, and welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why your patients include businesses as well as people? I really appreciate it, Stan. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. It's so exciting. So I, my, my career has been really fun and fascinating. You know, I'm in primary care, just like you two came from primary care. And uh, back in 1996, I had three people in their 40s that were patients of mine that I cared deeply about and had been seeing for several years die over a summer. And it was one of those moments where all that training, all that work, a lifetime dedicated to become a doctor, I felt like I'd failed them terribly. So to make a long story short, I went back and I looked at their, um, at their charts. And what I found was that all of them had risk, but I had been asking them, how do you feel? How do you feel? How do you feel? And they all said, I feel fine. And then they didn't feel fine and they died. And I realized at that moment, I was, I was, I was, I was uh, sparring with the wrong dragon. I needed to be sparring with health risk, not how someone feels. Now, I want all my patients to feel well. I don't hear that I don't. Uh, but what happens is, if, Stan, if I were going to have a heart attack in 15 seconds and you said, Scott, how do you feel? What would I say? Right. I'd say I feel fine. Yeah. And then if I had stage three cancer growing in my body and it just hadn't spread into a vital tissue and you said, Scott, how do you feel? I'd say I feel fine. But we really need to act while people feel fine. So I reinvented the practice. And as I reinvented the practice, my patients started going to their companies and saying, hey, this doctor does something really special to help people not have problems. It's not a wellness program. It's a prevention program. And so I got asked City of Grapevine, Alcon Labs, the, the uh, Federal Reserve Bank, Al, um, and Sabre Travelocity all had a lot of patients coming to me. And so we started to do um, our programs at those sites. And I had tremendous success. We did as a team. And uh, we saved, I believe, hundreds and hundreds of lives. Now it's thousands and thousands by changing the way we think about supporting employees with their mm. health and well-being. So, you know, we entitled this corporate risk reduction and the corporate determinants of health. We all know about social determinants of health. That's really, you know, a popular topic now. What are corporate determinants of health? Yeah, Stan, I appreciate you framing the question that way because right now in COVID, we're, we're, you know, as, as you know, we're, we're recording this in the early spring of 2021. We finally get COVID back on its heels. The vaccine is out. We're starting to do things. But the COVID epidemic really, or pandemic, really revealed that healthcare in America is a marketplace. It's not a system. 
and that people who struggle with the social determinants of health being against them don't get great care. And so just to review this real quickly, um, we're talking about uh, education and access. We're talking about the healthcare quality in their community. We're talking about their neighborhood. Can they even go walk safely? Or is it a food desert? Or do they have access to great uh, you know, food and, and activities? We talk about the social context with um, their culture. Does it support them being active and taking care of themselves? Or is it more um, you know, just not being engaged in your own health? And finally, we talk about the economic ability. Uh, in Dallas, Texas, where I call home, um, for instance, the, uh, the Wi-Fi going down to South Dallas is horrible. And so we have all these people who are supposed to be getting their COVID injections and they are, you know, immunizations and they can't even get Wi-Fi and uh, internet that works. So that's just, so, so the social determinants, COVID failure, we've got to redo things. And then to come back to the story I told you with the three people who died, they were not addressing the personal determinants of health, right? The personal determinants of health being, um, what are you doing around uh, lifestyle, exercise, eating well, drinking fluid, drinking water, um, uh, say, and getting enough sleep as examples? Are you getting your vaccines? Are you getting your cancer screening? Uh, do you have your biometrics, your cholesterol, blood pressure, weight, uh, blood cholesterol to goal? Are you taking care of your chronic illnesses? And if you do need a procedure or something, can you get to a top 10 doctor, a top 10 percentile doctor, and pay a reasonable fare? For what you're getting done. So those are the personal determinants. Okay. So now that, you know, I've, I've tried to create the bookends because what's in the middle of those, of course, is the corporate determinants of health. And, you know, wh what are the corporate determinants? Well, they're all the things that are being done or not done by the place you spend the majority of your adult life, right? I mean, you sleep hopefully for seven or eight hours a night. Then you've got the time between sleep and getting ready and going to work. And then you have the time from coming home from work to going to bed. But the majority of your time is spent at work. So what are the corporate determinants that, that really set you up for success or failure when it comes to your health? And we're calling those the corporate determinants of health. Uh, just I have to give credit where credit's due. Den Bishop, who is uh, the president of Holmes Murphy, uh, uh, in a very innovative, very creative human being and I have been brainstorming around this for several years. And he's the one who actually said, you know, we should call this the corporate determinants of health. So kudos to him, because I think it really helps corporations think, you know, the corporations get overwhelmed by the social determinants. It's like, oh my gosh, are you kidding? But what can we do about our culture and society? And they don't want to get too invasive with the personal determinants of health, but they don't realize they actually may play the biggest role in how well and how long their employees live. Let, let me, uh, oh, let me just remind, if you are listening to this live, we really welcome your questions and we'll be happy to answer any question we can. At the bottom of your screen, there's a Q&A button. Just press that button, type in your questions and we will get to them as we go along. So how does a company weigh the balance between, you know, promoting corporate determinants of health, but, you know, not kind of being the nanny state. Well, let's look at a, let's first of all, talk about what are the corporate determinants. And I think if, if anybody at a corporation, any C-suite or HR person sat down and thought about it, it'd come to them very quickly. Um, what's our training and development 
say, particularly around health benefits and uh, caring for yourself and the other things that we you typically kind of call wellness programs. Do we even have one? If we do, is it effective? Is it helping people change their behavior? Yes or no? And are we putting the resources in to do it? So that would be a, a health-centric way of thinking about training and development. Then you have the culture. Is it very stressful? Does it support individuals being able to pace themselves, take deep breaths, relax? Or is it very autocratic, get it done, get it done, meet your numbers, meet your numbers? Um, many of the companies that I work with, it was a, a bit surprising to see how they're doing a wellness program where they require people to go get physicals and get biometrics done and do you know exercise and earn all these points. And then they're requiring them to work overtime because they are the, the manufacturing area they're in is so busy right now. And then when people don't have time to call during work hours, because they're not allowed to talk on their phone and schedule appointment and then go to the appointment, they have to pay a hundred dollars more a month for their healthcare. It's like, Oh my gosh, talk about a stressful environment. So that's a secondary culture. Third would be the safety and the work environment. Do they have access to good food? Do they have a way to exercise? Or they just, I have one company I work with where they literally are on their rear end watching monitors all day long. They have to get so many calls an hour. And when they make their goal, they bring a food cart around with candy bars and soft drinks to reward them for staying in the game. It's like, oh my gosh, we, they literally, the first year people come to work at that company, they gain on average 20 pounds. It's like the first, it's like the freshman 20. Uh, it's like, no, 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 that would not be a good corporate determinant of health, right? And then the last two very quickly is the health benefits. And I'm going to go into another uh, deeper example with you in a minute. Where, uh, uh, I see we have a question here about HSAs and how that fits into this. So when we get into that, I'll talk about benefits. And then finally, the wage and benefits they're paying people. Do they pay people? Do, are there people paid uh, enough to overcome the costs that they put in place with their health benefits? So those are some quick examples of corporate determinants. You you talked about wellness, and on one hand, you know we know there are companies that have these huge wellness programs and yoga and all that, and then we've got the Al Lewis Quizify group that says there's never been a wellness program that works. How does a company balance that? Well, I think that uh, you know wellness to me is defined as a state or level of being. Like, what is the level of wellness? that an individual or corporation has. That's a state or level. And you can put metrics around that. You can measure it. You can see how it changes over time. Programs and services that change the well-being and health of a population, I would call those preventive prevention programs. And there's primary prevention, which is around lifestyle. There's secondary prevention, which is around early detection of disease or prevention of disease. And metabolic syndrome programs, uh, cancer screening would be great examples of that. There's tertiary prevention, which are people with chronic diseases getting the right care, eye, eye exams, foot exams, getting the uh, being put on the right medicine and actually taking the medicine. And then quaternary, which quaternary is, is when you're in the hospital, you know, what we can do, like they can suction out your ventilator and things like that. So my point is that prevention programs, they have metrics, they're time limited, they either work or they don't work. And so what the mentality we work with corporations around is, let's take your wellness of your individuals and corporations, and let's put pilot programs and see how they work with your culture to actually, you know, preventive programs, I meant to say, and then and that actually sees how we can improve it. So 
I know that sounds a little bit nerdy and, or a lot nerdy, but you know, you and I are scientists and we want companies to spend money on things that work. We don't want money spent on great ideas that have never been proven, as Al says. And by the way, one last comment about wellness programs. I, people ask me all the time, do I think it's okay or a good idea to have a wellness program? And I have two answers to that. Number one, um, it's a cultural question. It's, it's, it, it is, it's not about an ROI financially, because the majority of people who joined the wellness program weren't the ones that were going to spend a lot of money in the first place. Right. But if it means things to your employees, if it helps you recruit excellent employees, if it helps you maintain excellent employees, then it may actually be very worth it for you. Like, for instance, I know in California, we've worked with a number of companies where you've got Google and Salesforce and Microsoft um, and uh, Cisco all within the same area. And they're competing for employees. And employees literally won't go to companies that don't have great wellness programs, quote unquote. And so... You know, I think it's a different question. It's not really a healthcare related question. It's more of a cultural question whether you have a wellness program or not on board. So I've I've got a question here. So if let me paraphrase the question. If companies have PPOs and they offer their employees choice, should they be helping their employees with navigation and choosing among doctors? I mean what's the sense of having choice on one hand and then, you know, helping direct people on the other hand? Well, so I think that's a, that's a really, really good point. Um, and, and one of the things that we talk about with our corporations all the time is, is how do people in their company utilize the health benefit program? Because we, we talk about the yellow brick road and the yellow brick road is outstanding healthcare. It's really outstanding uh, health promoting care. It's not just illness care where, where do we get the best drugs and where do we get the right doctor to treat us? It's, it's how do we stay healthy because wellness comes from inside the body. Healing comes from inside the body. So how do we support that? And, and there's two ditches in any road, right? On one ditch, we talk about getting too much care, which is what happens oftentimes with young, healthy people. They go in for an annual physical and then they see uh, a little uh, blip on say a mammogram or, uh, you know, they, there's a lab abnormality and now they're chasing an abnormality. And the person's like, I feel fine. And now you're costing me a fortune. What are you doing? So that would be an example of too much care. And then there's not enough care. And that's the cases I've talked about earlier, people with hypertension, diabetes, and cholesterol, they don't get the proper medicines. They don't get the proper care. They end up with a heart attack, stroke, congestive heart failure, kidney failure, and it didn't have to happen. So, the question for corporations is how do we help keep people on the yellow brick road? Now, from a health economics problem standpoint, high deductible health plan sounded like a great idea because now people actually have some skin in the game and they're not going and paying $10 to get unlimited care, in which case they were getting too much care and often inappropriate care. So great concept. The, the, the fly in the oil of the high deductible health plan is really the uh, HSA and the laws around the HSA because because it is a tax benefit, the federal government has said you can't pay for anything for a person until they meet their deductible or, or co, you know, well, really deductible, so it is. And so today I was before this call, Stan, I was on, I was on a call with somebody who um, was sick, went to the doctor, they put him on a medicine, the medicine's $7,000. The um, 
the, the personal deductible at that company is $5,000. The person has $400 in the bank. And he called up his HR and he's like, what do I do? I might, I don't have any money in my HSA account and I am, um, you know, I can't afford to go get this medicine. And the doctor tells me I'm going to die without the medicine. What do I do? So that's a perfect example of how our, um, our system and the health corporate determinants of health, that corporation has not thought through what they can do to help somebody. So, so it's not the high deductible health plan. It's not working with HSA. If, they, if you had an HRA, then what the company could do is say, you know, after medical review for, you know, appropriate medications, if there's, it is determined that this individual because of his income and things needs assistance, then they could give him assistance. But with an HSA, that's precluded. And so we need to go change the HSA laws. And I'll just real quick, uh, one other point I'll make here, particularly around direct primary care and prepaid advanced primary care. That's where we really trip up with these HSAs. Do you, a lot of your companies have direct primary care? And those that do, do they think it's effective? Well, healthcare is regional. And so it's, it's, so I'm going to talk theoretically for a moment, uh, Stan. Um, I believe that the best healthcare system that we could have and the one that we will have five to 10 years from now is one where there is advanced prepaid primary care. And I'm just making a distinction there. Direct primary care is the prepaid part of it. But there's a lot of people who take, you know, 35 to $70 every month and say, thanks very much. And they don't do anything for it. Yeah. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about proactive, <clears throat> look into the risks of that person, make sure they get their immunizations, their cancer screening, make sure they're getting the right uh, the care and support them in getting their medicines and staying on the medicines if it's necessary, or even better, changing their lifestyle and not needing medicines. That's advanced primary care. So I believe the future model is everybody in a company gets advanced primary care and that's paid for. So there's no financial impediments for them to go get taken care of. And 80% of the care that's provided, as you know, as an internist and me as a family doc, it can be handled by the primary care doctor. Then what will be on the backside of that will be arrangements where you have um, prepaid bundles for anything elective. So anything like an elective CT, MRI, um, or if you need a surgery, you want to go to the surgeon that's done it more than 50 times, has a dedicated team, has a dedicated uh, operating suite, and in the price, because they're so efficient, is going to be less than the average doctor doing the procedure. So I know, Stan, you had talked to me about a, a, a project you've been working on called Zero Card. That's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about on the back end of, of advanced primary care. And you put those two things together, and all that's left is emergency care mm -hmm. and severe medical illnesses that need hospitalization. And, you know, that would basically, for a company, I honestly believe with all of my heart, their healthcare costs would be less than 70% of what they're paying today with those two simple things put in place. And you've got to have navigation to make that happen, right? You've got to have a guide to help people navigate that because it's more prescriptive. And again, just like the example I gave, people work when doctor's offices are open and yet they're supposed to be managing their health. How do they do that? It's impossible for the average worker today. So they need support and they need someone to help them do that. 
So a couple of episodes ago, we had a guest on who is delivering direct advanced primary care at no cost to employees. And the one thing that I'd like to get your opinion on as working on the purchaser side is how do you measure the effectiveness of that? That they're really getting what they say they're getting and it's really working. And I know some things, you know, it's hard to measure outcomes when they could be five and 10 years off, but what can we measure along the way? What can a company do? What can you do in your role to tell a company, you know, this is really gonna work? That's a great question. And the answer is it's, you can. So first of all, let me emphatically state that you can do it. Data leads to wisdom. And every company that can, if they're large enough, and large enough would be 200 lives or more at least, 500 lives, it gets really easy, but at least 200 lives, you should get your, I hate to shit on people. Um, It would be a great idea for you to get your data and to get in a data repository, because that's what I do. Like I'm I'm a data nerd. I love data because data leads to wisdom. So I take their data, I put it in. Now, In my opinion, from claims data, which is a lagging indicator, we're looking in the rearview mirror to see what's going on. You can look at the, I've identified 24 variables, Stan. And you you know about this because you were one of the pioneers and leaders in the patient Center medical home initiative. And you did so much great work in Oklahoma. And you know that people, high advanced primary care, what happens to those folks? They are getting their immunizations. They're getting their blood work done. They're seeing their primary care doctor regularly. They're on the appropriate medications for their disease. They're getting, um, you know, the gaps in care or the places where they should be getting care that they're not are closed, whether that's eye exams for people with diabetes or it's being on an ACE inhibitor for people who have kidney issues, right? So all of those things start to change. So I, I have developed a uh, what I call the the you know, the secret sauce, it's kind of a silly name, but we didn't have something to call it. And it was fun to call it that, where we go in and take claims, pharmacy and eligibility data. We put it all together. Every person in a company gets a score and that mm-hmm. score can be five at the low. It can be 200 at the high. And it's asking the question, how sick are they? Are they getting appropriate care? Are they using the healthcare system appropriately? Are they going to the emergency room every time they get sick or urgent care? Or do they have a primary care doctor? Are they getting appropriate medicines and are they taking appropriate medicines? And so bottom line is there are 300 variables. Each one has a score one to five. We look at the data and we in very quickly see who's at risk and who's not at risk. Then we have a guide that calls the person up and says, hey, I'm your personal assistant and I'd love to help you connect with high quality primary care. Um, have you thought about that? Does that meet your goals? What are your goals? What's important to you? What's your why that you would engage in your healthcare? And then there's a relationship that's formed. And then the personal health assistant just helps that person go to the doctor. And then afterwards, what the doctor say? Do you need help? Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to get this and this. Okay, let me schedule that while you're at work. Which day works for you? I could do it on Saturday or I could do it on Tuesday afternoon. Okay, I'll get that. I'll take care for you. And we actually remove barriers for people to get to stay on the yellow book road. Where do, so is that personal health assistant, that guide, an employee of the company? Is that one of your people or who? Now, it's important they not be an employee of the company, to be frank, because employees and their family members don't want their employers knowing their stuff. Right. So, um, and, you know, insurance companies had the right idea at one moment, you know, because they thought well, we can set these banks of people up and we can get that done. The, the two problems with that one is nobody wants to talk to uh, a dialing for dollars 
operator out of who knows what part of the world and talk about their personal stuff. So in our program, each company is given one person that they get to know. They get to know who they are, where they live, what their kids are, right? It's, it's a human being. It's a relationship. And then two, um, who wants Cigna at the United Healthcare calling you up and you know, it's like, what? You're the ones that take all my money. And are you really there for me? Are you really there for my health care? And we know that most of the programs, unfortunately, uh, only get a 3 to 5% participation, whereas the personal health assistant program is between 40 and 80% participation. Really? And so, yeah, it's really, if we don't, if we don't, if we, you know, if we don't get, we were, you asked me a question, can corporations see advanced primary care work? There, when you look at the data that I just talked about, Stan, mm -hmm. what you see is about 60% of the company, if they didn't do anything this year, nothing bad would happen to them. I mean, they, their blood pressure might get a little worse. Their weight might go up a little bit. Their, you know, their, their blood sugar might go a little higher, but they're not going to have a heart attack, stroke. They don't have cancer, and there's no reason to believe they would. They're not in the right age group or right gender, um, and they don't need anything right now. 30% are high risk, but they haven't hit the wall yet. So they're relatively low cost. They're spending less than, you know, $1,800 per year or $150 a month between what they pay and the corporation pays. But those are the people that have the heart attack, the stroke, they get diagnosed with the stage three for cancer, they get the hip replacement, knee replacement, neck surgery, all those things. And so the game is to help those people live a great life and not get, not, not go down the usual um, lost soul, uh, you know, waiting for bad things to happen. And that's where the personal assistants really, really develop that strong relationship. And so if you're not getting 30% participation, you're never going to get ahead of the cost. And, it, and particularly the 30% of the high risk, low cost people um, that are in your corporation. Then you've got the 10% that are spending 80 plus percent of your money but they're already on fire, right? I mean, they've already got the diagnosis of stage two for cancer. They've had their heart attack. They've had their stroke. They've had the joint replacement. And so they're going to be less expensive next year anyway. And I actually saw a program. It was, it was ingenious, but devious of one of the big health insurance companies. And they said, we're going to assign a full-time RN nurse to your 50 most expensive people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's going to cost you $250,000 a year. And we know that the 50 most expensive people, they're, depending on the size of your company, they're spending yeah. millions of dollars. Right. And we know their costs are going to come down anyway. So they guarantee that there'd be at least a $500,000 decrease in cost for the people the nurse took care of. Now, Stan, you and I know, she could go smoke cigarettes and drink beer at a bar, and that they would win that bet every time because the people who are spending a lot of money today, they're either going to die, they're going to go on disability, they're going to retire, or they're going to get better. And any one of those four they spend less money next year. So it was a real silly program. And we're the exact opposite. We want to get there before they have bad things happen and help them not have bad things happen. So I got a question and it goes back to your personal health assistant. And it's a very simple question. Why isn't my doctor's office doing that instead of my company doing that? Well, and the answer to the question is um, because they don't pay to do it. I mean, the, the primary care um, in the United States is miserable. And for those of you who don't practice primary care in the United States, what it looks like is you get up, you go in the office, the first 12 to 14 people you see pay for your nurse, your office, your uh, rent, and your equipment. 
And then you'd get to patient number 13 and you're actually starting to take home a paycheck for yourself and you're getting paid $75 for that person. And so it, the average doctor wants to, to see at least 20 people a day. And, um, and so now they're seeing those 20 people, which isn't a bad deal. I mean, that's not a problem. If they were all prepaid advanced primary care patients, that is an easy day. But in USA today, everybody's got a form you got to fill out for the medicine you're writing, or you're getting um, forms that say in order to qualify for the, the, the quality, you've got to fill out this form and send it back to tell us you did these things. And then you've got to talk to doctors when you're going to get your patient's particular care because they want to do a medical review. And then they don't pay you a lot of the times because part of the game of the TBAs and the insurance companies is every time they send you a note back and say, we're not going to pay you for that. They know that half the time you don't have enough time to go figure out why and go send them all the paperwork they need to do that. So most doctors never get around to that. And so the insurance company never pays it. And so, you know, at least 10 to 15% of the people you see, you're never going to get a pay paid for anyway. Plus, with all the high deductible health plans, now I've got a relationship. I love that person. I care about them. And they look me in the eye and say, Dr. Conard, I have a $5,000 deductible. You're handing me a $150 bill. I either have a choice of buy groceries and put gas in my car tonight or pay you. And of course, I'm not going to say, oh, we'll starve and walk <laughs> to work tomorrow. I mean, come on. So being a primary care doctor in the United States right now is is just miserable. And so that's where this, this change in compensation needs to come in, Stan. But it's also where it's unrealistic to expect that doctor to hire another nurse that's going to be calling people up and saying, hey, Stan, it's time to come in and get your blood done and make sure your blood pressure's okay and got to get that annual physical done. And, you know, um, I understand that you were told you need to have a knee surgery, but are you really sure? Let's get you to the top knee surgeon in, you know, your geographic area that is paid on salary. He's not going to get paid more if he happens to do surgery on you. And which case, gosh, about 50% of surgeries are never done because they were inappropriate in the first place. And by the way, Stan, if that's neck surgery, 70% of the time, if you go to Johns Hopkins, they're going to tell you it doesn't need to be done. And right. if you're a woman with breast cancer, we know that 50% of the women with breast cancer never get the genetic test that tells whether the chemotherapy is going to work or not. So, you know, it's just, it's a real, it's the wild, wild west in healthcare today. And anytime we can put more structure and guidance that's high quality in place and help people, then the reason the corporation can afford to pay it is because the program I'm talking about says $1,800 per year per person for that 30% that's high risk because they're not having the stroke, heart attack. You get their cancer at stage one, so you never pay for stage three or four. You get them to the best doctors for their spine, their knee, their hip. And, um, and then the off times they don't get it, or if they do get it now, the guide says, Hey, your company has a zero card thing where you can go to the best hospital and you can get it for much less expensive. And then you don't have to pay a bunch of money out of pocket. And so now they're guiding them through what we call pathways of care to get the best possible care. So we got a couple of minutes left, Scott, what else are you working on uh, for the future that may be interesting to employers? Where, where is all this going? Well, so you know, it's interesting because whenever you start something new, you basically go through four things, right? You have to pull it out of what you didn't know you didn't know you didn't know. Like, for instance, one of the conversations I have all the time is with corporations, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you could really help people this way. I didn't know that you could save a lot of money and do these really proactive, helpful things. Mm -hmm. So they go from 
from not knowing to unconscious or from unconscious incompetence. Like I didn't know that my people couldn't use their actual insurance. They were underinsured to conscious incompetence. Oh crap. I've got a system that doesn't work for my people. And so that's where I come in. Okay. Here's some real low hanging fruit. Here's how you can save a fortune in your PBM to pay for all these things. Here's uh, where we can actually make, the chronic medications free for your employees and save you money because now they don't have a heart attack stroke in the emergency room. So you go from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence, but then you fix the problem and now you go to conscious competence. But most people stop there and they fall back down and like weight, weight loss is a great example. People realize, oh my gosh, I'm too heavy. My cholesterol is out of control or I have diabetes. They lose weight, but then the tyranny of the urgent gets them distracted and they fall back down to weigh more. And then they lose weight and they fall and they're going up and down. You know, people, the average obese person in the United States has lost their body weight twice over, right? Because um, they keep gaining it and losing it. So to make that final step to unconscious competence, which I call intuitive well-being, requires a three to five year program of just knocking off the next baby step until it's automatic to do what the thing is that you're committed to, the, the, the conscious health care. And uh, we call those baby steps. And, and you know, it takes no more energy to maintain a good habit than a bad habit. Is a this, habit's a habit. Is this a corporate program or a personal program? Yes. Um, <laughs> I, started off developing, um, I started off developing it for individuals. And I just wrote a book called Intuitive Wellbeing. In fact, it's, it's, it's getting published right now. And it's about intuitive wellbeing. It's about taking that and finding the metrics for your life, looking at your data, finding the leading indicators, the things that you've got to do to fix those and building the habits one habit at a time, one baby step at a time until finally your life flows and life is easy. And that's in personal health. It's in, um, you know, it's in social health. It's in financial health. It's in emotional health. It's in spiritual health. They all follow the same rules. So I did all that program for individuals, but then I realized with corporations, with the corporate determinants of health, they have to develop the same muscle memory, the same habits, the same way of thinking through things. And so we're now using that intuitive well-being, the concepts and the structures that we developed for the individual to help corporations go from unconsciously incompetent and hurting their people, shortening the lives of the people who work for them to unconsciously competent and just having it flow. So they don't have to do as much work. You know, HR people, being in HR is like being in family medicine. It's a button kicking right now. Everybody's got a compliance law, ADA. Everybody wants to tell you what to do. To have a system that actually works, that you don't have to manage, that you don't have to spend a lot of time with, it adds years to the life and life to the years of the HR people as well as their employees. Well, Scott, we really appreciate you being a guest today. If somebody wants to get in touch with you to learn more, how do they do it? Uh, well, it's, it's easy. Scott at scottconnor.com is my email. And uh, Stan, I know on your podcast, you'll have the contact information so they can always go to the, the 360 podcast and pull it off of there. But scottofscottconnor.com is the easiest uh, way. And if you can't remember, just go to Google and type in Scott Connard and uh, you'll get all sorts of videos and all sorts of silliness that's out there. Great. Well, Scott, we really appreciate your being our guest today. I want to thank the audience very much for listening in. I hope you enjoyed that. Well, I hope you'll join us next month, probably about the same time, same place. Until then, I want you to stay healthy. I want you to take care. And if you hesitate about getting the COVID vaccine, sit down with your doctor, have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation, and learn the real facts about 
why the vaccine is effective and can help stop this pandemic. So until then, we'll see you next time. Thanks very much. We hope you've enjoyed the time with our very own Dr. Stan for 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan Schwartz, a part of Zero Studios. Tune in, subscribe, and review our podcast to keep current with the ins and outs of the medical and healthcare industry from the inside out.